Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Food delivery business, it seems like there's so many competitors out there, DoorDash, Uber Eats. We have uh, Adam Price, CEO of Waiter Holdings. Uh, Adam, thanks so much for joining us. So in this food delivery business, first of all, tell us about Waiter Holdings. Tell us about the history of the company and kind of your strategy. Yeah, absolutely. So so Waiter was founded in Louisiana, and we focus on small, medium-sized markets around the U.S. So whereas in the big cities, you have the big companies like DoorDash, Grubhub, Uber Eats, in the small cities around the U.S., uh, you have Waiter, and we operate another brand called Bite Squad. There's a feeling that there's been too much hopium around the food delivery services. And I'm sure you've read all of these articles, and I'm sure you shake your head and you say, they just don't get it. Uh, what do you think right now of some of the backlash that we've been getting from all of the investment in food delivery services? Yeah, it's it's a great question. The The real crux of the of the arguments right now is what is the sustainability of this space? You know, if consumers are expecting free delivery and you have to take a portion of the sale value from the restaurant, you know, where does this space live in its entirety? There's been so much money that's flown into it. And are these businesses sustainable and can they be profitable? And, and we really feel at Waiter, the, the focus needs to be around consistency and really aiming for a consistent customer experience so the customers stay sticky to the platform and stop jumping around from platform to platform. And then focusing on the operational efficiency uh, in order for the sustainability and the long-term profitability of the There's business. There's consistency that's important, so is making money. And that's proven to be difficult given the fact that there is competition, including getting in your car or using your legs and going and getting the food yourself, right? right. I mean, how do you, how have you found profitability? To be? Well, th there's a clear shift in the consumers willing to pay for convenience. So, so the, the competition of a consumer going to pick it up, that, that is a clear deviation in what you're seeing in terms of consumer behavior. People are willing to value their time, they're willing to pay for convenience. So food delivery isn't going anywhere. The question is what makes it sustainable and profitable? And, and in our system, what really drives that profitability is, is the attachment of the customer base. You can't continuously be paying to acquire new customers, and that's really done through consistency. And then the streamlining of the operations, and that's what gets you to that profitability. And one of the items we use, which is dramatically different than our competitors, is we use W-2 drivers as opposed to contractors, which allows us to pull some of those operating levers that I can get into details if you like. All right. So let's talk about profitability. I'm looking at the Bloomberg terminal right now, the FA function, and uh, uh, Waiter Holdings is not profitable. We even had, so, and you guys have been in the business for a few years, and I'm looking at it, the forecast for 2020, still not forecasted to be profitable. Uh, I look at Uber, which has got scale out the wazoo. They even say that their Uber Eats business is the weaker and the least profitable of relative to their ride business. What is the model to 
profitability? What levers have to be pulled? Well, there, there's a couple of things. All, all of these groups just exploded in growth because of geographic expansion. And you have to be in step one in being profitable is realizing, you know, what markets do you have that put you on a path to scale and profitability that allow you to operationalize and bring in that sustainability with that scale? So one of the things we've actually done recently uh, is pulled back on our market share or on our markets. We closed 38 markets uh, that will be finishing in the next 15 days or so that we announced in our last quarterly call. You have to be very careful not to be overextended in this space. What's interesting to me also is how the consumer accesses waiter, right? I mean, do they go to waiter's website or do they go to the restaurant that they want to order from? And then there's a tab from waiter. So which is it? it it's both. Okay. You know, you're trying to acquire customers in multiple fronts. We have an app, a mobile application, just like, you know, most of the players in this space. We also put order now buttons on the restaurant's website, which drive people to download the mobile app. Um, so there's multiple channels, but the primary channel that we receive all our orders is the mobile application. So it's interesting. So Uber Eats, some of these bigger market ones, Grubhub, are you finding that they are now coming down into your mid and small size markets? And if so, how do you compete against those big companies? Yeah, absolutely. So what you've seen is that, you know, in an effort to continue the, the rapid revenue growth, geographic expansion has been the primary tactic. So you have almost in all of our markets, you have two to three primary players now in food delivery. You have Grub, Uber, Waiter, or Grub, DoorDash, Waiter. Uh, so you see multiple players in every market. The key to owning that market, again, is around consistency of customer experience. Anybody can go into a market and start offering customers free food, and they're gonna get customers. If you don't have to pay for delivery, you're gonna start using or trying the platform. What's critical is the way to retain those customers is by consistently having a good experience on the delivery side. How much are people willing to pay for delivery? It ranges based on markets. One of the nice things about smaller and medium-sized markets is you do get a larger appetite for paying for delivery uh, fees. see what he did there. <laughs> All right. Because people are that much more willing to. But it's still, you know, I we recently changed in, the, in most of the way to branded markets our delivery fee from $5 to $4 because it resonates better with the customer. So you see downward pressure in that consumer delivery fee. Uh, that you have to adapt to on a market by market basis. Are you still, I know you said you're downsizing, closing some markets. Are you still adding some markets selectively around the country? It's very selectively. Okay. One of the things when a space becomes highly competitive like this is you really have to leverage your brand and geographic proximity when you expand markets. So, so as you grow, you need to be very careful not to jump geographies and be overexposed to com competitive pressure in that area and, and grow very organically almost from a geographic standpoint. How often do you order in? I order in several times a week. Yeah. What about you, Paul? Rarely. Yeah. Do you go pick it up or you, yeah. you cook? Yeah. Or just bring home. Yeah yeah. 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 Why are you driving? I know. It's a good question. It's a good <laughs> no, question. No, but I also <laughs> love the idea that it's um, people like to value their time could also be translated into people are lazy. They don't want to get off the couch. But actually, it is true, especially if you have a family or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And, and that's what's beautiful about the small, medium-sized markets is it's a much higher concentration of families. So, so you end up, time is our only finite resource. So if anything, that should be the most valuable um, item that yep. we have in our day-to-day in our -day lives. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, absolutely. Adam Price is Chief Executive Officer of Waiter Holdings, uh, which is based in Louisiana, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios.
Hopium is the word of the week, at least uh, hopium that there will be some sort of deal despite the fact that we have no concrete evidence. We've seen this before. We've seen, we have really, we're really getting close but we have nothing uh, again and again and again. Joining Sick. us now to talk about whether the hopium is real in, our, in terms of market reaction and how it should persist heading into 2020 is David Kotak, Cumberland Advisors Chief Investment Officer. David, I know that you've been bullish uh, on equities. Do you continue to be even after the recent like higher and the recent new uh, all-time highs that we've seen? Uh, at the moment, I am getting very nervous. We entered the market, went to fully invested structure, Lisa, uh, the last week in August. Yeah, I remember that. And, and we have been there since then. And at this level with, uh, of markets and with the current news flow, I'm very, very concerned. The market is discounting all the positive outcomes, and it's being fueled by a very expansive Federal Reserve policy, which is creating huge liquidity that doesn't last forever. So the answer is, am I concerned and worried? Absolutely, yes. And would I be making changes? They could come at any time. So the changes, David, this is interesting because I think obviously over the last several times we've had you on, you've been very correctly in the bullish camp. So this is, a, uh, from our perspective, a little bit of a turn for you how would you proceed if you were to continue to be cautious? What kind of changes would you make? I would raise cash, lower equity exposure. I might consider switching to more defensive, less aggressive sectors. Um, our quantitative work has been guiding us because it's capturing these uh, uh, changes in market sentiment. And the market sentiment uh, has become extended a variety of ways to estimate that we never know for sure but we're seeing it and our view is the market is reflecting changes in headlines which are affecting sentiment fear of wealth taxes the warren sanders approach seems to be subsiding as the politics change um, whether impeachment would be conviction in the Senate seems to be subsiding. The House is uh, maybe an assumption, but the political risk is now the Clinton impeachment model, not the Nixon impeachment attempt model. So markets are making adjustments, and I think part of that is due to an assumption. The assumption is there'll be some form of truce trade reduction of tension, and that's necessary for economics to start to improve. The economic landscape is terrible because we see manufacturing sector shrinkage, and all the news flow that you, you report every day is, is sending that kind of a message. So to us... It says, okay, we had a big pendulum swing. We're at all-time new highs. And I never saw a client complain when you took a profit and put it in the bank. All right, so where would you take profits here? Well, uh, I would cut back on the high beta sectors, which have really, really raced ahead. So you'd, put, you'd cut back on, on Apple and tech, yeah, well, Microsoft right. Tech, big tech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The big names, the tech sector among them. Um, um, the defense has had a terrific run, 
maybe it'll have more. I, I, you know, these are this has to now become an ETF by ETF, sector by sector, industry industry by industry decision. But for the run from August. The wind has been at our back because the we were in cash in our quantitative models from the end of February to August. And we have had a terrific year by having cash during a period of time of high volatility and uncertainty in the way we measure it. And then we had the triggers, so we went in in August. I, I, it's been a remarkable uh, year. And at this juncture, you have to ask yourself, how much more can you expect? I'm above my targets for year-end on the S&P. It was a 3,000 target, you may recall. We've discussed it on the show uh, over the years. Well, we're above it. And uh, we look as uh, like we have stability now in the monetary area, at least it appears. So you can't expect much improvement beyond that. And... We are seeing little uptick signs in inflation and uptick signs in some of the bond interest rates. And what that suggests is the wind has been at our back, but maybe it's now subsiding. Hey, David, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your color as always, and uh, clearly we sensed a little bit of change in tone from you, so we appreciate you sharing that with us. David Kotak, Cumberland Advisors Chief Investment Officer. So that was news for me, Lisa, because David's been consistently, I think, constructive bullish. on the market. Bullish. Since and, August. Uh, and now he's saying, you know, he's had a nice uh, run here, as uh, obviously has the market has, um, and it's not the worst thing to perhaps take a little bit of money off the table, maybe get a little bit uh, defensive. Uh, we've heard that from some people uh, as well. Uh, others are still saying, hey, We've got uh, more to run in this market, but you know, uh, a grizzled veteran like David Kotak saying, let's get a little bit cautious. Very interesting uh, change in tone for him. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So we got retail sales out this morning and they did gain, but they were a little bit more muted in certain areas that gave certain economists concern that perhaps the consumer, the stalwart of the economic expansion, uh, was running out of steam. Joining us now, Mark Vittner, senior economist at Wells Fargo Securities. And Mark, I really do want to hone in here on the consumer since it has been so pivotal in driving growth here in the United States. Do you view the retail sales uh, that we got out this morning as potentially a warning sign? I don't know that it's that much of a warning. We're coming off a lot of strength in the third quarter. And there's also, there was some supply disruption in the auto sector. And and I think that that may have uh, weakened what would have been even stronger auto sales. So, you know, I, I think that the, um, the consumer seems to be in reasonably good shape. While job growth is slow, the unemployment rate is very, very low. There's no sign that layoffs are picking up. So, so folks aren't concerned about their job security, and wages and salaries are, are, are accelerating. So I, I, I actually think there's too much pessimism about the consumer. 
And and if we had numbers just like this every every month, month after month, we would still be better off than uh, than what most folks have forecast for the next year. So, Mark, how concerned are you about uh, the manufacturing sector business investment? Uh, continued weakness there. Yes, that's a smaller part of the U.S. economy relative to the consumer, but how do you kind of view that mosaic? Well, it, manufacturing is a smaller part of the economy, but it still accounts for most of the swing. When we went from 2% growth to 3% growth, two-thirds of the acceleration came from manufacturing. And the move from 3% back to 2 two-thirds of the acceleration has been because of a slowdown in the factory sector. Part of that is due to the ongoing uncertainty about where we're headed with, with trade negotiations with China. If we get a trade deal with China, manufacturing activity will probably pick up. Investment will probably pick up um, six months out. The other thing that has been happening is that when growth, when the economy was growing 2%, you needed less inventory than when we were growing 3 And now that we're back at 2 businesses have been reducing inventories, and that's weighed on manufacturers. That, that pull to, to manufacturing activity from, from inventory destocking is now probably behind us. So... I think in the very near term, we're going to see a little. We're going to see some better numbers on industrial production and better numbers in the ISM manufacturing survey. The estimate for year-over-year GDP growth in the United States right now: one point eight percent for twenty twenty. How close are we to stall speed here? Well, one point eight percent is about what we've averaged. Uh, what we averaged from two thousand ten to two thousand sixteen. I guess if you look over the entire business cycle, uh, we're right at two point three percent. Uh, since the recession ended. So it's a little bit slower than where we've been. But if we grow 1.8% per year, that's probably enough to keep the unemployment rate steady. And we're at 3.6%. So that's not horrible. I would rather see growth somewhere north of 2%. Uh, I think the um, the greater risk is that when growth slows, we're more vulnerable to some sort of exogenous shock. If something bad were to happen somewhere in the world, uh, so maybe if China took a harder line on Hong Kong, um, that that might tip the balance in, into recession. Wait, but, walk, uh, walk through that a little bit, because we have been seeing these headlines about how things have been accelerating and, and tensions have been rising increasingly in Hong Kong with the death of a student. How does that end up being the exogenous factor uh, that disrupts the global economy more significantly? Well, you never really know what the exogenous factor is until it happens. That's why they're called black swans. But, but my, my sense is if China did have to come in harshly, uh, then the uh, then the response from the West would probably be trade sanctions and economic sanctions on China, uh, which would be far worse than the, the trade war. And and we saw how much the trade war slowed global economy. So if uh, if sanctions were, would have to be put in place on businesses doing business in China, then that that would be a whole other ball game, which I think would would really slow the global economy. But that's there really wouldn't be any choice in the matter. It'd be similar to what what we saw in Russia after Crimea. So it would be, uh, you know, it would be similar circumstance to that. So, Mark, do you think the Federal Reserve is taking the right tack here after that last rate cut to just say maybe a little bit of a pause here and we will take a look at the data as it comes in? Yeah, I think they are. I mean, and, you know, I don't want to, you know, let me just say one last thing on China. That's certainly not something that we're looking for. I think that I, I really doubt that we would ever see a scenario like that. But, um, but I think that, that, that the Fed is holding off to see are we going to get a trade deal? And if we get a trade deal, does it cause the economy to reaccelerate? And uh, if it does, then they're probably done. But um, I think a lot of folks think, hey, if we get a trade deal, the Fed's done. I don't think it's that simple. I think, you know, yeah, we got to get a trade deal, and then we have to see if that trade deal actually impacts the economy in a meaningful way. 
And if it does, then they probably are done. Uh, but right now, we still have another cut uh, on the funds rate in March. We have another quarter point cut in March. But they're clearly in a wait and see uh, mode right now until we get to March. Do you think uh, if we get if we don't get a trade deal that the 1.8 percent prediction for 2020 growth seems right, or do you think it would be substantially lower? Well, when we came up with our, our forecast of 1.8 percent growth, we were we were assuming uh, no trade deal or a minimal trade deal, and um, and so um, you know, I. I it's really hard to say, but I would say that the downside risk to the economy would certainly increase if we don't get a trade deal, because it's not it's not just the immediate effects on the U.S. economy. It really works through the dampening effects, the further dampening effects on global economic growth and how that comes back to impact the U.S., because the U.S. really is not a – we don't have much of our economy tied to the global economy, certainly not as much as, as other industrialized nations do. So – Jobs has been a big part of supporting this consumer. We've had to kind of slow down. Are you concerned about jobs? I'm not as concerned about the slowdown in jobs. And actually, the slowdown is greater than what the reported data indicate, because in August, we got the, the, the quarterly census of employment and wage data, which showed that job growth from March of 18 to March of 19, which is the source of the revisions that we get early next year, was half a million jobs right. less than was previously reported. Most of that downward revision is in retail trade because of the, the loss of jobs to online retailing yep. in the leisure and hospitality sector because of rising wages. Got it. Total income earned from those jobs is actually stronger than had been previously reported. So that more than offsets the fact that job growth is slower than slowed. Mark Vittner, thank you so much for joining us. Mark Vittner, Senior Economist at Wells Fargo Securities. WeWorks back in the news. Coming across the Bloomberg terminal right now, WeWorks uh, is said to face SEC inquiry into possible rule breaches. Uh, so we want to dig into that. Matt Robinson, Bloomberg News, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Also a headline out there, Roger Stone is guilty in U.S. trial over lies about the 2016 leaks. So the headlines continue to break. But going back to WeWork, so what's going on here? What do you think this, the SEC is really looking at here? So when the SEC opens investigation, they're looking to see whether what was disclosed to investors was re reflected in you know, private discussions, what was going on in the company. So they're always looking for, um, you know, if you're saying something publicly, that it matches what you're saying privately. And uh, given the sort of uh, fall from grace from WeWork over the last couple of months, certainly, you know, um, sort of unsurprising for securities lawyers to be like, they're going to make sure that they're kicking the tires and that everything that was, uh, you know, going on in the company was known to potential investors. So there has been uh, there have been other reports that the SEC was in close contact with WeWork leading up to the IPO saying your documents are insufficient. The whole community adjusted EBITDA that they changed to something else was problematic. You guys need to account for your finances in a better way. How instrumental will that be in this investigation, if at all? Well, in, you know, for something like this, another thing to point out is that often with these kinds of investigations, they last years. Um, you know, the average investigation is like two to three years for the SEC. And, um, they're, you know, they're sort of wrapping their arms around, like, you know, what was disclosed. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, you know, the company was uh, had a prospectus out for bonds. You know, there's a lot of information to sort of dive into uh, to make sure that, you know, investors were properly informed of their business. So the deal never happened. Okay, but still the SEC can cite them for some issues as it relates to just 
its registration statement and things like right, that? Right, right. So anytime you're raising money for a venture, that's a security. I mean, uh, that's a very general uh, way to, uh, to sort of talk about it. But, you know, venture capital. I mean, if you're if you're raising money for a venture and you're lying to sophisticated investors, that's, you know, the SEC has brought cases uh, in recent years, given how how much that market has been growing. What's the potential penalty for WeWork? It's hard to say. I mean, you know, this is something that's just just getting started, um, you know. Most of the time, you know, the SEC is a civil regulator. They 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 can't. Uh, they look at you know it's penalties or hey, we want you to improve this disclosure. Um, you know, so it's 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 very hard to say at this point, though. So, but you know, can the SEC like one of the things about WeWork when it did file its S one, there is a lot of governance issues there. You know, about uh, uh, the corporate jets and leasing back space and so on and so forth. Are those some of the things now that those are disclosed? Now, are those some of the things that the SEC might look at and say, was it full disclosure or, the, you know, did you need to do more? Right. Those are those are um, those are good questions that the SEC is going to be asking because, you know, those are sort of legal lawyer to lawyer questions. You know, what how do you define material? Was this you know explicit enough? But uh, the SEC, you know, has in the past, they look at those kinds of transactions. Is this really a true arm's length transaction? Is this, you know, separate from, you know, would you have given this deal or proposed deal to anyone else that, you know, you didn't have a relationship with? Looking right now at WeWork bonds, they are implying a yield of 15% or nearly 15%, uh, 74, wow. uh, a little bit less than 75 cents on the dollar. These are bonds maturing in 2025, not long term debt. Yield. They were trading it back in August, I believe. Yes, yeah. it is absolutely. Uh, well, actually, they were trading back in September. Uh, they were trading at a 7.2% yep. yield. So yes, uh, more than double. And I'm just looking right now, and it raises questions about the financial feasibility of this company going forward. And I'm thinking, uh, Matt, as you talk, a two to three year investigation by the SEC. Is WeWork going to be around in two to three years to uh, to account for whatever malfeasance, if there is any found? Uh, yes. I mean, even if, uh, you know, if that scenario were to happen, you know, you're still obligated to deal with, you know, uh, uh, securities laws. So, I mean, for, um, you know, for them, they're going to want to, you know, just be like, hey, you know, here was our full disclosure um, in, in um, you know, in, in raising cash. Is there any fallout for the investment banks and the law firms that advise WeWork on this underwriting process? Does it typically spill over to them? Generally, I mean, it depends on what the, the government's looking at. If, if, uh, if the story is is that you know this was a you know a, a company that everyone was expecting great growth and it was you know people really thought this was the value of the company then it's it's hard to say there was some misrepresentation right there's there's people believed in this story at the time but if in if in turn it's like well actually they were you know they were not being as explicit about their business then you know and and then who knew about that 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 those are the kinds of things that the government wants to uh, sort of investigate. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, really a, an interesting uh, interesting story. Good scoop. Thank you for, uh, for joining. Matt Robinson uh, covers all things related to financial regulation and the SEC for us here at Bloomberg. Uh, WeWork uh, is said to be facing an SEC inquiry into rule violations potentially over their disclosures being perhaps a little incongruous depending on who they're talking to. Yeah, it's interesting to see how this will play out, but it's just, just one more. It's just the news keeps coming for WeWork. Um, you know, you know. Think about the fall from grace for this company. We started the year to where we are uh, now. It's just extraordinary. And so the question really is, as you raised, I think at some point, if I think we may be there right now, is what is the ongoing concern 
uh, story with WeWork here. As you, as, you, as you look at the balance sheet and you look at the cash burning, can they cut cost fast enough to get the profitability? Now, they did bring you know, some of their profit forecasts a little bit forward, but it's still, it's really under, under question. The news keeps coming also from Washington, D.C. We should just say that Roger Stone, the longtime Republican operative and early Trump booster, was convicted uh, to lying to Congress, of lying to Congress, obstructing a congressional probe and witness tampering. This is just uh, two days after House Democrats separately began public impeachment hearings, but this just came down uh, as well, and we wanted to bring that to you. In the markets, uh, we are seeing uh, something of a rally, although it's actually extending gains. You've got the Nasdaq up six cents of a percent similar with the S&P uh, and the Dow with uh, optimism that there will be some sort of trade deal. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.